0: Hey, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Very grateful to be with you all this morning. So I know a lot of great Christians who have never had like a big moment in their life. Like my wife, for example, um, she grew up a Christian and she gradually grew into a deep abiding faith, but she can't really point to any one specific experience or any one specific moment that was like this big epiphany in her life. And I know a lot of people like that. But for me, when I was in college, I did have one of these moments where it felt like overnight I went from doing the most, doing everything, to one day having an encounter in a Bible study on campus that left me speechless. Now, if you know me, uh, you know how hard that is. Uh, But I found myself in this Bible study reading through a page of Scripture and feeling like scales on my eyes had been lifted off. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was happening to me, and to be quite honest, a piece of me was a little afraid. Now, since that moment, uh, as soon as that happened, I really became, uh, at that time, I was so, so, so hungry. I remember a couple of weeks after that Bible study, I would just sit in my dorm room reading scripture sometime for hours. I just wanted to know so much more about God. Now, at this point, I had no intention of teaching any Bible studies. I never in a million years thought I would be a pastor. I just wanted to know more about this God who had just changed my life. But then something happened, something I'm not too proud of. Eventually, all of the things that I had been doing for God, I started to wonder if I was doing a good enough job. So last night, I read two chapters of Scripture Should I have read three? This morning, I woke up at 6.30 in the morning to pray. Should I have woken up at six? I talked to one person in my class about faith, and I invited them to a Bible study. But should I have invited two or three? Eventually, I don't know what happened or how it crept in, but eventually, my life was on this grading sheet. And every single day, I would come home and take stock and take inventory of how good of a job did I do? The craziest thing is I would read stories about God who is love, but I never felt God loving me. All I felt was some days I would feel relieved that I think I did enough. In other days, I would be really disheartened because I didn't do enough. And eventually, without my life, uh, without knowing, my life turned into one really long test a final exam with no end in sight, and every day I had to wonder if I was doing Christianity right. Now, something had to change, and thankfully it did. I finally discovered something for me that was like a second wake-up call. It was grace. Now, some of you, you've heard it. You've been to church a couple times. you heard this thing called grace, and, or you think you know what it is. Some of you have heard it, uh, it's moved you emotionally, but it doesn't really you don't think they, it can change your life. Others of you feel like it's too flimsy, and it's not something that could actually help you in, in your life. But I think one of the challenges that we have as we approach this new year, 2024, and we're in this new series called The Good Life, is that I don't know that you and I are operating with the right motivation for how we engage with this year. Whatever God has for you this year, my hope and my prayer for you is that the motivation, the fuel for your engine this year is grace. That it's not whether or not you have done a good enough job. That you come to know God in a way this year in which God is not keeping score. Now, I'm going to read a parable in just a little bit that I hope is going to offend a lot of people in this room because it offends me, um, myself, because Jesus, in many ways, when he talked about grace... It was so offensive to people. It was offensive to everybody. Now, I think one of the biggest reasons um, that grace is offensive to us is because you hear that God is not keeping score, and that goes contrary to the way we live our society. God doesn't keep score, but, but we do. I know everybody who has fallen asleep during a sermon. <laughs> and when you email me, I know that's the reason I don't respond on time. <laughs> no, in our life, I actually do that. No, um, and, and, in our world, we, we, we keep score. We, we, we treat people based on their track record. If a person has done a good job, we treat them like they've done a good job. If they haven't done a good job, we treat them with distance. Now, to a certain extent, there's a lot of wisdom in that, for example. It would make no sense for you to go with a landlord who had a terrible track record of how they treated their tenants, right? So to a certain extent, it serves us. And in business relationships, That's a good idea to treat people based on their track record. But in personal relationships, you should never treat a personal relationship like a business one. You should never treat a business relationship like a personal one. One of the things I've realized, my wife and I have been married 10 years now, and i realized how much I went into marriage uh, treating it like it was a business relationship. And my wife and I would get into arguments, and I used to be an attorney, so I used to go into arguments like a lawyer, and I would say, oh, isn't it, is it fair to say? Is it fair to say? And uh, she would never even answer those questions, thank God. About five years into marriage, I stopped being so dense, and I realized that maybe I shouldn't be treating my marriage like a courtroom. Maybe I shouldn't be treating this relationship, which is meant to be personal in nature, like it's something that is business and duty. Here's the thing about me as a pastor, and here's the thing about me as as a Christian. Maybe we shouldn't be treating God like God is your contracts professor. Maybe you shouldn't be treating God, maybe you shouldn't look at God like God is your boss who's evaluating your Q4 results. Maybe you shouldn't be treating God, maybe in some of our cases, like our father who was really, really hard on us or a father who didn't pay attention to us unless we did something exceptional in our lives. Maybe God is something different. Now, one of the things that Scripture tells us about the beauty of Jesus is that Jesus is, Scripture says, the visible image of the invisible God. So all throughout the Bible, Scripture writers tell us that nobody has ever seen God face-to-face. We don't know what God looks like that we could never come that close to God, but Scripture says that in Jesus, in looking at the person of Jesus, we get the visible image of the invisible God, that we get a perfect uh, depiction of what, who God is and what God is like. And if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And when Jesus came, he taught about this thing called grace, which offended every single person who listened to it. I want to read the story from the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is one of the four gospels in the New Testament, uh, and they call it Matthew because it was written by a dude named. There we go. You guys are great. Uh, and Matthew was one of the four gospel writers that took a lot of detail and a lot of attention to pay um, to make sure that he would accurately record the life and the time of Jesus the Christ. And here's what Matthew records as one of Jesus's teachings. Um, in front of a great crowd of people. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 20. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into the vineyard for the day. He went out at about nine in the morning. He saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, You also go into my vineyard, and I will give you whatever is right. So they went off. About noon, and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foremen, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. Let me pause here for one second. All right, so you have this landowner, and Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who's hiring people to the field. And if you're keeping count, the landowner has hired about four different groups of people. The first group, he got them early in the morning, like around six or seven in the morning, The second group, he got them at 9 in the morning. The third group, he got them at noon. Third group, a fourth group at 3, and the fifth group at 5 p.m. So all of these people were hired to work the same field. However, some of the people who got hired that same day have been there since 6 in the morning. They've had to be there working hard, toiling, and finally, it's time to get paid. So it's time to get paid and it says, when those, in verse 9, when those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more. But, and here's a, I mean, it's a pretty easy assumption. It's like, they got here at 5 p.m., they only worked like an hour, and one of the crazy things a lot of scholars would say about this, uh, the story that Jesus is telling the reason they didn't get hired first in the day was they weren't good workers. So not only did they get hired last, but they also were, like, the lowest quality G-team <laughs> that finally got picked up just because, like, all right, we ain't got nobody else. Come on, get Rodney. Let's go, Rodney. Let's go. <laughs> Offense. Uh, no no apologies, apologies to Rodney's in the room. Um, so they finally bring all these different people. And the people who see the people who got there last get a denarius. They're like, well, even though he told us we were getting a denarius, surely he's going to give us a whole lot more. And scripture says, Jesus says as he tells the story, but they also received a denarius each. Wait a minute. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work in the burning heat. He replied to each one of them, friend, I'm doing no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want, listen to this, I want to give to this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do What I want with what is mine? Or are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, when Jesus told the story, he was telling it to a group of Pharisees, and a lot of the implications that Jesus was trying to impress on the Pharisees is this one point. You do all these different things, you wear these robes in the marketplaces. You sour your face when you're going on a fast so that everybody can see you. You are competing for who is the holiest person, but let me tell you right now, God is not keeping score. Many of us, if you're brand new to faith or if you've been around for a while, all of us face one of the great dangers in the spiritual life of turning God into a scorekeeper, Your mood rises and falls based on how well you think you are doing that day. And God wants to free us. God wants to free you to a real relationship with him. And in a real relationship with him, you will come to realize that he is not keeping score. You know, as a father, I get to experience this in in different ways now with my kids. Uh, My kids have different strengths and different weaknesses from each other. Uh, I heard a, a... Someone once said that if you have multiple kids, God will give you the perfect child. He'll just spread out the goodness among, <laughs> among all of them. And uh, my kids have different strengths and, and different weaknesses. And I was talking to my therapist one time and she said, Well, how do you feel about your, your, child, your children and their, and their weaknesses? I said, Well, I, I love them. I mean, I, I want to help them in their weaknesses. She says, Well, I, I don't hear any judgment. I don't hear the same judgment in your voice for them as you have for yourself. Is God not a father? Does God not want to help you in your weaknesses? Does God not want to give you grace so that you could be what he's calling you to be? Is God going to walk away from you because you haven't got it right the first time? Is Jesus the type of shepherd that will walk away from the one or the 99 for the one? Is that Jesus, that shepherd, is he going to leave you on your own to figure it out? What is it about our thinking that has morphed the goodness and the grace of God into something that we can earn or, or not earn? Friends, God is not keeping score. And so there's a couple implications for us from this text that I really want us to consider. First and foremost, the, the first is a challenging one. It's that we are at the mercy of God. We are at the mercy of God. You know, I've done a lot of thinking about this, and I think the reason that I prefer for God to have me on some sort of rubric, is that I can control how I do. But if it's not at all up to the scorebook that I think God is using, then it just kind of feels like I'm at God's mercy, that God can do with me whatever he wants. And personally, I love to feel like I'm in control of the situation. You might be different, but I love to feel like I have some input in how things are gonna go. Mainly, I think one of the big reasons is is this, if God has to treat me based on how well I'm doing, then I can avoid all suffering and pain in my life. I can just do a, a better job than you, and then I could prevent difficulty, pain, and sorrow from coming my way. But over the years, I've realized that uh, God allows, oftentimes, God uses suffering in, in the lives of the people who are the closest to Him. Many of the people who I know who are who love God the fiercest, have the most loyalty and devotion to God, have had to deal with some of the things that I would say are the most unfair things in the world. They've had to deal with real pain and real suffering, real disappointment. And why is that? Well, we know why it's not. We know it's not that God is giving them back karma for what they did or didn't do. That's not the way our God operates. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about this text is that um, all of these people who are working in the vineyard, they are all completely at the mercy of the landowner. So none of them own any land. And what Jesus basically, how he describes them and how he describes us is this, they're just standing there waiting. They don't have a field of their own that they can tend to. And without someone calling them towards service, they will go home broke as a joke. Now, Jesus is saying that to let us know a, a truth about ourselves, a truth about the way that he wants us to see ourselves soberly, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to, that none of us, we don't come to God on an even foot. God is, part of the reason we should be glad that God doesn't keep score is because if he did, he would all fa- we would all fail miserably. I think one of the biggest temptations that I have is to think that God must be impressed with me because I'm doing a better job than someone next to me. But if I compare my goodness, my righteousness, my holiness to the holiness of a perfect God, Scripture says that all of our holiness and all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's, it's not worth anything. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, there was an NBA lockout um, happening all over the association and uh, I was in college uh, um, in Baltimore, and a couple times um, a month, some of the NBA players would come to different gyms just to stay in shape. And since I was in Baltimore, uh, Muggsy Bogues, who was a five foot three basketball player, Hall of Famer, uh, would come to Morgan State's gym. Now, I was in good shape, I was playing basketball, I looked at this dude, I was like, this dude is five foot three, like, let's be honest. This is not. This is, I don't know what he's doing in the NBA, but the NBA is soft because I'm about to show this dude what it is. Muggsy Bogues was the single strongest human being I've ever met. And what he lacked in height, he made up for in aggression and anger. And some people will get mad at you if you score on them. Like some players, if you score, they get real mad and they'll, you know, play even harder. Muggsy Bogues would get mad if you dribbled on him. Like if you bounce the ball, he would just get angry, seething with anger, everything. He pushed me around for the entire game. Uh, I was so happy just to get the ball out of my hands whenever he was near me. And I realized the difference between a college player and an NBA player. That stuff you see on TV, it's hard. They make it look easy flying through the lane. That is impossible for regular people. Listen, when I played against a real NBA player, it changed my standard for what... Good athletics is. And I realized where I actually fit in. I think for a lot of us, we just don't have a sense of what God's holiness truly is. God's perfect righteousness. What it means that God is holy, that He's different. He's, He's, the angels, when they would see God in Scripture, they would just say, Holy, holy, holy. He's different. He's just in another category than ourselves. And you and I should be thrilled. That God is not keeping score because if he kept score, he would compare us not to each other but to himself. And we would fail miserably every single time. So it's God's grace for us that keeps God from judging us based on uh, a pure standard of how we are doing day in and day, day out. We have to stand in front of God, all of us one day, and receive what we are due. And our hope should be that he is merciful. Our hope should be that we are standing not on our own merit, but in the merit of what Christ has earned for us. So number one, we are at the mercy of God, and that means that we should be hopeful that God is not keeping score. Number two, one of the most important things from this uh, parable is that grace is not opposed to effort, but it is entirely opposed to earning. Let me say that again. God's grace in your life, it is not opposed to effort. God invited the landowners, the, the workers to come in and work on the land God invites you. God does have things for you to do. God does call you to live in certain ways. God's grace in your life is not opposed to effort. God wants us working hard. But it is so entirely opposed to us feeling like we have earned something from God. You know, one of the biggest challenges um, that we need to do, look at really as a clarifying tool, is what makes us angry, what makes us mad. Look at verse 11 through 15. It says, uh, they were being paid, and it says, when they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of a day's work and the burning heat. He replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? And the last line is a question I want to ask you: Are you jealous of other people because God is generous? Let me talk to this side of the room because y'all ain't y'all ain't telling me the truth over here. Are you jealous? One of the litmus tests of your comprehension of grace is how you view. When God gives good things to people who you don't think deserve it. And God is trying to use that to excavate some immaturity in our lives. To show us we might not get this grace thing like we think we do. You know, years ago I was talking to a friend, a pastor friend. And some of the stuff that pastors talk about would bore you to death. But this one uh, would also bore you to death. But I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, We were sitting around and one of our friends said, oh man, great news. Great news. Someone just gave us a building. I was like, oh, really? Did this for free? It's free. And that's it. They just gave it to you. Okay. Man, let's praise God for that, can we? Yes. Praise God. And he was just talking about it, and I was just daydreaming like, oh, man. Next morning, we're at PS76. Thank God for PS76. I was... Getting angry with God. I was mad at God the whole subway ride home. Like, Lord, we've been thugging it. We do like really faithful work. We try really hard. I was mad because God was generous. You don't want a God that's not generous. You think you do in those moments, but you actually don't. I don't know why God gives certain people some things at certain times and others at others. That's between God and God. But I do know this God is generous. And he wants you to pay attention to your anger, to trace back the deficiencies in your understanding and comprehension of grace, because it's not helping you, it's hurting you. Uh, A number of years ago, um, in going through difficult times, this truth really had to be solidified in my life. And this is very important for those of you right now who are going through really difficult times. Uh, It could be an illness, a sickness, uh, a loss of a job, homelessness, any number of things that is just a challenge for you. And you need to know that God is not keeping score in your life, and here's why you need to know this. If God is not keeping score in your life, then it means his reasoning for having you where he has you might be for many reasons, but it's not payback. And if you hold on in faith, you will discover that in this time, you're not alone, and what you're going through is not meaningless. And that's only if God as Jesus is showing us here in the Scripture, operates on a different spectrum, that God operates on grace. You know, when you talk about the word grace, it's so misunderstood. I think when you talk about grace, uh, people tend to fall into one of two errors. Uh, The first is called moralism. Moralism is the belief that you you can improve your standing with God based on good behavior. Um, I'm generalizing here, Uh, so yeah, moralism, the belief that you can improve your standing with God based on good behavior. Now this is a generalization here, so please don't uh, argue with me in the hallway. Generally speaking, in the more liberal circles, moralists tend to focus on social ethics. So uh, how vehemently you protested the war in Gaza, right? Um, And more conservative circles, they tend to focus on more personal ethics, like sex. Now all of these things are important, But generally speaking, you can be a moralist and not a religious person. It's just this belief that the better I do, the more God loves me. Now, good things matter. However, uh, this is the belief called moralism that dominates so much of our theology circles and it masquerades as Christianity. On the other side of it is relativism. It's the belief that because you're saved, nothing you do matters. And you can just do whatever. God is love. God loves me. And as long as I'm not hurting anybody, YOLO. It's all good. Now, in many ways, uh, these are the two cliffs that people fall off on on the journey of faith. Uh, Years ago, my wife and I went to Angel's Landing in uh, Utah, in Zion National Park, and we were the only black people in Utah. (laughs) And when we got to the mountain, I realized why we were the only black people there. Um, There's this beautiful, from photos at least, mountain mountain, And on this mountain, there's this crazy cliff on both sides. There's a 1,000-foot drop on on both sides of the mountain, and we actually climbed it. Why we climbed it, I have no idea why. Uh, But we climbed it and made it to the top, took some selfies, uh, Check out my wife's blog for some pictures. Um, And on our way back, I remember thinking the whole time just how dangerous it is that there's not, like, at least one wall you can lean against for safety if you get dizzy or something like, like that. I honestly think that in a journey of faith, there are those two cliffs on both sides of us that a lot of people fall down. It's not fatal, but um, it is something that a lot of people trip up on and fall on because they're so easy to fall off on these two cliffs. We're so easy to fall off onto moralism, trying to improve our standing with God, or relativism, where we feel like it doesn't matter, but the gospel is something entirely different. So the goal of the grace in your life is for you to work from a thankful heart. The goal of grace, what God wants you to do this year, in 2024, is to work from a thankful heart. Now the difference between uh, grace and feeling like God is keeping score, what it will be measured most closely in is gratitude. Let me ask you some questions. If you think about, here's a test, If you think about doing anything, you want to read the Bible more, you want to get out of this relationship, you want to do this, is it motivated from guilt or gratitude? If you think about doing anything, if you think about obeying God, are you working to meet a requirement you think there is, or are you responding in gratitude to the love that God has for you in spite of what you can do? The goal of the gospel is for you to work from a grateful heart, because one of the lives that uh, you see all throughout scripture, a life that has been really permeated by the gospel, it just has allegiance to God. So it changes even our motivation for why we do things. Yeah, one of my favorite scriptures is 1 Peter 2.11. 1 Peter 2.11, it says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. What is Peter saying? Peter is basically saying, You have been rescued by Jesus. Jesus has transferred you from the the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He has put you in here with your brothers and your sisters to give you a hope and a future. God now smiles on you because of what Christ has done. And now, the call that Christ is calling anybody who has placed their faith in him is not to perfect obedience, rather. It's to allegiance. So the reason, we talked about this yesterday in our How to Read a Bible class... The reason that sin is such a big deal is not just because you did something or you didn't do something. It's because our sinful behavior shows our lack of allegiance. You know, I've talked at length about me being a recovering people pleaser, and part of the reason I was a people pleaser was because I loved the praises of people more than I loved the praises of God. And so the challenge for me is not just to beat me up and tell me, Jordan, don't be a people pleaser, don't be a people pleaser, but rather, Jordan, who's your allegiance to? If somebody's going to be disappointed with you, why would you choose God over them? What God is trying to produce in your heart is, is a different motivation, a different engine altogether, In that our lives, we're lived on a straight and narrow, but not because we're afraid, but because we have so much deep allegiance based on what Christ has done for us. You know, I want to end today with just reading a scripture from Ephesians 2. And it talks about what the gospel is. And here's what it is in one of the most perfectly put phrases uh, that you see throughout the Bible. It's written by a man named Paul, and I want to read it over your ears. I want you to internalize it. And every time you hear the word you, I want you to think about you personally and to apply this to yourself. And you were dead in your trespassing sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit which is now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, He made us alive alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, God might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one could boast. For we are his workmanship, his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. I'm going to pray for us in just a second. And in my prayer, I want you to take some time of of silence and reflection to think about. What is God's invitation to you right now? What is God inviting you into right now based on his grace? For some of you, it's, to, it's for God to replace this idea you have of him, of this scorekeeper with a God of grace who has good things for you to do. Let me pray for us. God, you know how deeply entrenched this idea of working to earn your favor is, for some of us and for others of us, you know how deeply entrenched the idea of it doesn't matter is. Lord, we see both the bigness of your grace and the bigness of your call to us. It may motivate us to live just differently. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.